Worship was better than that. Y'all can give a hand to the worship team. They were up here singing this morning, singing, singing, singing. Uh, so I am, uh, my name is Pastor Derek Parks. I have the privilege of um, serving as the lead pastor here at Epiphany Church uh, in Wilmington, um, Delaware. And it is my uh, great joy to stand before you this morning. And um, I am just encouraged in the Lord for what the Lord is doing uh through you all, uh, through his people, church, and um, we got excited for all the fun things that we've got coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, the Christmas party is going to be awesome. Um, we're excited for that. Um, bring a friend, all that good stuff, okay? And um, it'll be great. So um, we're jumping into a brand new series today, um, if you didn't pick that up already, um, called Unto Us. This series is uh, bringing us into our Advent season. Um, anybody know what Advent is? You heard of that before? Yeah? No? Show of hands? No? Okay. That's not a lot of hands. <laughs> so Advent is, uh, Advent just means the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. Um, most of y'all have were waiting on the Advent of the iPhone 10XR. So y'all know what an Advent is. You just didn't know. I got some Samsung haters over there who talking junk. <laughs> he got to make those sound effects because his, his phone doesn't make any sound. <laughs> so, listen, so during this season of Advent, um, we what we do is we look back, right? We look back at Jesus' arrival onto the scene, right? Uh, this is the season that we set aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus, Um and in this season, we look back towards his miraculous birth, um, and Jesus' birth displayed God's power. Anybody know that? It displayed his, God's power and his faithfulness to bring peace, hope, healing, and life to a lost and dying world. That's what it did. And see, this new series explores the Christmas story. By examining the relationship between the book of Isaiah and the purpose and work of Christ in the New Testament. So we're going to spend some time in Isaiah during the series. Um, but because of Jesus, we can have the joy that comes through his finished work. Therefore, in this season of Advent, we look back to the arrival of Jesus, uh, but also Advent fills us with expectation. And it fills us with the expectation of his coming again. How many know that Jesus is coming back for his people? Oh, uh, you got to know better than that. How many know that Jesus is coming back one day for his people? And when he comes back, he's going to come back not as a little baby. He's going to come back as a righteous ruler who's going to reign over the earth and he's going to vanquish his enemies forever. And we look forward to that with great expectation, right? We're tired of suffering. We're tired of this life of sin. We're, we're tired of everything that plagues us here. And we look forward to when Jesus will come and take away everything as he rules here on heaven and earth. So this is going to fill us with great expectation for what God can do in our lives, but not only that, but what he's going to do in the life of our church here in this community of Wilmington and in this region. So we're excited about what God's going to do. Amen. Join me in Isaiah chapter 7. Hey, son, I lost the screen here up front. Um, join, us in, in, join me in Isaiah chapter 7. I'll be in the first verse through the 14th verse. Hear these words of our father. It says that this took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Aram's king, Rezin, and Israel's king, Ka, son of Ramalia. They went to fight against Jerusalem, but... They were not able 
to conquer it. When it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest, shaking in the wind. They were scared. Verse number three, it says, then the Lord said to Isaiah, his prophet, he said, go out with your son, S.J. (laughs) S.J., that's his name. Uh, (laughs) To meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the laundress field. And say to him, calm down. Somebody say, calm down. Tell the other person next to you, calm down. Say, calm down and be quiet. And that was just me reading again. <laughs> I was just reading again at that point, sorry. Um, <laughs> he said, don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks. The fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. For Aram, along with Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia has plotted against harm against you. They say, let us go up against Judah, terrorize it, and conquer it for ourselves. Then we shall install Taviel's son as king in it. This is what the Lord God says. It will not happen it will not occur the chief city of aram is damascus the chief of damascus is resin within 65 years ephraim will be too shattered to be a people your enemies might think that they're creeping up on you but god says they won't even be after a little while See, the chief city of Ephraim is Samaria, and the chief of Samaria is the son of Amalia. And if, listen to this, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. Verse 10, he says, then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, ask for a sign for the Lord from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not tempt the Lord, being all pious. Isaiah said, listen, house of David. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, The Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, stir our hearts. Increase our faith this morning, God. Fill us with expectation, God, as we look to your word here in the book of Isaiah, God. God, we pray, Lord, and we pray with expectancy, knowing that, God, you will do exactly what you said you would do in our lives, God. And, God, I pray, Lord, that as we hear these words, we might respond and be doers of the word, not just hearers, but doers of the word. And we might respond by saying, Lord, help us to obey, Lord. And it's in that same spirit that I pray that you would stand in my body and think through my mind and speak through my mouth and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer, in whom I place all of my trust. And the whole church said, Amen. Amen. That was a good word. (laughs) We can go home. (laughs) Listen. A young psychology student serving in the Army decided to test a theory. So, drawing kitchen duty, he was given the job of passing out the apricots or apricots, however you say that, at the end of the chow line. And he asked the first few soldiers that came, that came by, he says, you don't want any apricots, do you? 
90% of them responded and said, no, I don't want any apricots. I don't like apricots. Then he tried the positive approach. He says, the next couple soldiers that came by, he said, you do want apricots, don't you? And half of them answered, yeah, I'll take some. Then he tried a third test. Based on the fundamental selling technique, he asked, said to them this time, one apricot or two? In fact, the soldiers who don't like apricots, especially not army apricots, 40% of them took two apricots and 50% of them took one. What happened? The level of expectation was raised for them. And that's what's happening in our passage today as well. The level of expectation is being raised here in this passage. God is speaking to King Ahaz and he's saying to him, he said, ask me for a sign. You're worried about those those who are coming against you. I know that Ephraim came against you before, and I know that Rezin came against you before. But listen, they're trying to co- co- they're trying to come together and come against you now. But listen, it's not going to happen. Raise the level of your expectation. He has. I want to submit this main idea to you today is that in the presence of Jesus, we've got to raise our expectations. In the presence of Jesus, we've got to raise our expectations. See, this, the, the presence of Jesus, the presence of the Savior should bring us calm. See, we open up Isaiah chapter 7 to a crisis uh, in the kingdom of Judah. The Hebrew people were split uh, into two different kingdoms after the death of Solomon and Israel. It was Israel to the north and Judah to the south. I'm going to teach you for a little bit so that you understand the context of this. See, both kingdoms, they struggled, though, to stay faithful to God. And eventually, they both were exiled. Isaiah 7 shows the kingdom of Israel and Aram trying to invade Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. Y'all following me? So King Ahaz of Judah, he's nervous about the thought of that invasion. Scripture says that the heart of Ahaz, in verse number two, says that the heart of Ahaz and his people, they were trembling as the trees and the leaves of the trees in the forest are shaken by the wind. That's when God sends the prophet to King Ahaz to tell him, calm down. Maybe you're going through a scary circumstance right now. And I want to tell you, calm down. That's the first step. Calm down. I don't know who needs to hear this today, but calm down. See, this word means to be on one's guard. See, that means that to be on guard, you've got to be a warrior in the battle. See, if, if you're going to ever be on guard, if you're going to use your guard, you, that means that you're, that you're in the battle. People that aren't in the battle, they don't have to use their guard at all. But for those of us that are in the battle, then we've got to learn how to use our guard well. Earl, he goes to the Hall of Fame uh, for boxing because it's in his hometown. He goes there uh, to, to, to watch boxers, and we talk about boxing all the time and all this stuff like that. And one of my favorite parts about boxing is how they guard themselves from being hit. That's why Floyd Mayweather is one of the best boxers ever because he doesn't get hit. See, you've got to guard yourself. Remember the movie 300? Anybody remember that? This is Sparta, all that stuff. You remember that? When he kicked the dude, and he went down the little hole. Nobody remember that? Dang. Y'all ain't got me in here by myself. <laughs> See, listen, they, they, they were fighting against the Persians, right? And as they were, they were fighting, they were in their famous formation, right? They were holding their shields up, and they had their spear out like, they were doing 
See, the Persian captain, he, he yells out because the shield was supposed to cover them from their head to their ankle. They're supposed to get in a position where the shield would protect them and their vital organs. But not only that, it was going to protect the person who was closest to them. So when you use your shield, you're not on, when you're on guard, you're not only protecting yourself, you're protecting those that you're in relationship with as well. See, the Persian captain, he yells out to the Spartans. He says, drop your weapons. So some disrespectful dude took a, a, a spear and threw it all hard and it hit the captain of the Persian army right in his chest. Boom. He fell down. That was disrespectful because he threw it so far. Um, so Leonidas, the, the, the captain of the Spartan army, as the Persians are now rushing the Spartans, they're rushing up on them. He yells to his men that are behind him. He yells, hold the line. Keep your guard. Give them nothing. See, they, they were holding their guard during the attacks of battle. And that's why they were so successful in battle, because watch this. The Spartans valued their shield more than they valued their spear. See, Scripture tells us that we have a shield as well, and it's called the shield of faith. See, Ephesians chapter 6 says that in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. See, when you use your shield properly, you can withstand anything that the devil tries to throw at you. When you use your shield of faith, you can withstand through the circumstances of life that are trying to come up against you and trying to take you out. You got to learn how to use your shield. See, when we use the shield of faith, here's what we do. We access, we, we, we build a hedge of protection around us. See, this word here, this word uh, for calm down, it can also mean to build a hedge with thorns. See, uh, this is good. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus, he had a hedge of thorns placed on his head so that now today you can be protected from everything that comes up against you because Jesus had a crown of thorns hedged around his head. And so because of that, we are protected from the, from the infamous nature of sin and death in our lives and we don't have to be slaves to that anymore. See, Jesus was a hedge he, he, he was hedged about his head with thorns so that we could have calmness in every situation that we find ourselves in. Why? Because the level of expectation can be raised. See, if Jesus would be beaten for us to provide a solution for us for our sin problem, then surely he can provide a solution for your relational issues. That's why he tells them to be quiet. We all know those people, we just want to tell them to be quiet. But here God is speaking through his prophet, telling the king to be quiet. That's because he's the king of kings, and he can tell you to be quiet, because that's what he does. See, but that, listen, that reality, <clears throat> that reality that Jesus will go, that, that the level of expectation has been raised, because Jesus went to the cross for you to die for you so that you could have a solution for your sin problem, that ought to point you to the reality that it could cause you to be quiet and cause you to be at peace. And it can cause you to sleep well at night. See, if we truly focus on, on our faith, we can be tranquil in the midst of difficulty. That's why he tells him, don't be, he says, don't be afraid. King Ahaz, Isaiah tells King Ahaz, don't, don't be afraid. This phrase here can mean to cause astonishment and awe. See, if you've been near me for any period of time, you've probably heard, this, heard me say this before. But Christians don't fear because we have a different astonishment. See, we are in awe by the same things that unbelievers are in awe by. 
See, we are in, in awe. We're not shocked by the same things that unbelievers are shocked by. We're, we're, we're not in all of that kind of stuff because we know of the horrors of sin that we were once walking in. Therefore, when we see the horrors of sin in the world, we aren't shocked by it because we know that if Jesus could rescue me, he could rescue that sinner too. See, the challenges of death don't astonish us because we know the death that we used to deal in before we were in Christ. See, the fickle nature of finances don't astonish us because we know that the finite nature of our spiritual bank accounts before Christ rescued us. Here's what I want you to know is that our astonishment produces our expectation. See, when we are sick in our bodies, we can expect to get well because we were once sick in our souls and Jesus healed us. See, our astonishment, we look differently at situations and we're astonished not at our circumstance, but by our Savior. Oh, I need some help in here today. Listen, we've got to be astonished not just by our circumstances. We must be astonished by the Savior who rescues us from our circumstances. When we are facing the death of a relationship, the death of a business, or the death of an educational goal, we expect to overcome it because Jesus conquered death's grip on us. See, when we are facing financial hardship, we expect to become solvent because Jesus reconciled us and settled our account with the Father and he stamped it paid in full. See, your little, your little bills, they ain't nothing to God. He owns everything. Your little search, your little relationship problem, it, it, it doesn't matter. It's not worth anything because, listen, Jesus, he did the most to bring us in right relationship with the one that matters the most, and his name is God the Father. Listen, that's why he tells them, he says, listen, be quiet, calm down, don't be afraid, and stop being a coward. See, that's why God told Isaiah, that's why he told him to tell him that. This word can mean to be soft or weak, but it also means to be faint-hearted. So many of us punk out in difficulty. We turn our back on God in the day of calamity, proving that our strength was small. And so many of us stop walking with Jesus because of a circumstance. I can't tell you how many times people stop walking with Jesus because something didn't go the way that they wanted it to go. We got to grow up, people of God. See, listen, as a father, fathers, one of the things that I provide for my children is the strength to withstand something called salience when you can be firm and nurturing at the same time. That's called salience. See, we call our children to put aside their temporal emotions and call them to focus on the goal or task at hand. Now, listen, we don't always do that correctly. And it produces a, a, a toxic masculinity in men that contributes to the patriarchal nature of society. I, I'm with all that. Sometimes, though, the best way I can motivate my son is to tell him, Stop being soft. I don't like that. But sometimes that's the best way I could get to him. Say, son, stop being soft. Especially when he's on the football field and he's having an uh, okay game. And I want to get him to go to the next level. I say, hey, stop being soft out there. And he can hear me because I got a big mouth. And he turned and he looked. And then he goes and kills them on the next play. I'm like, that's motivation. That's what I wanted. See, God is doing the same thing here in this passage without all of the difficulty of, of being a man. <laughs> he tells them, stop being soft because I'm here. That's what he's telling them. Stop being soft. Stop being weak because I am here. At least my next idea is that the presence of the Savior provides protection from harm. 
See, it says here in verse number five, it says that for Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, they had plotted harm against you. They say, let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves. Then we shall install Tabiel's son as king in it. See, there's no greater conspirator in your life than life itself. See, life will devise a plan against you. He'll devise a plan against you that's so great it will break you at your core. See, life will plan and plot against you so well that you will come to expect, watch this, you'll come to expect less from life than what God has promised. That's why I say they're plotting harm against you. That word means to give pain, unhappiness, or misery. See, life will plot your harm. Life will plot your unhappiness and your misery. See, here's what happens. When the relationship that we were in that we valued so much breaks down, you'll start to expect less in your relationships. Oh, I'm talking right now. See, when the business idea fails after you did everything right, you'll start to expect less from God's ability to show you great and mighty things like Jeremiah 3, 33, 3 talks about. I guess God won't give me any more creative ideas since I failed on the last one. We start expecting less from God because life has dealt us a blow. When your last attempt to have a baby doesn't take, you start to expect less from God's ability to bless the fruit of your womb. Like Deuteronomy 28 tells us. It just must not be God's will for me to have children. Look at me. That's fatalism, not sovereignty. See, we teach faith at this church because God is sovereign. And watch this. He also changes his mind. See, your situation might look bleak right now, and it might look like nothing's going to change or nothing's going to happen, but God, he's a God who will change his mind. He's just looking for a people who are going to rally up and cry out to him and pray and seek him and search for him that he may be found. See, we don't teach fatalism. You're not doomed to your circumstances. You've got a God. Remember the Avengers movie when they was fighting and all those little uh, Ultron things was coming all over the place and they was running all over the place and they was getting mad. And they was like, man, they got an army. But they turned around and they said, but guess what? We got a Hulk. I'm here to let you know today that you've got a Hulk and his name is Jesus and he will help you to stand in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your difficulty. You've got a Hulk. It says here that they, they, they try to terror, they're going to try to terrorize. Let us go up and terrorize Judah and conquer it for ourselves. See, once you've fallen and slipped into fatalism, what happens next is that the enemy will begin to terrorize you. You'll start feeling this word means a sickening dread come over you. Why? Because your expectations have been lowered. Then that sickening dread starts to conquer you or it starts to divide you, the word means. It starts to divide you or split you or break you into pieces. That's what that that Hebrew word there suggests. We start saying things like God must not be as good as he says he is. If he were good, my mother wouldn't have died. If he were good, my job wouldn't have fired me. If he were good, my car wouldn't have broken down. If he were good, my girlfriend wouldn't have broken up with me. If he were good, my baby daddy wouldn't have kept on cheating on me time after time. See, what then? Here's what happens next after that. After we get conquered and, and, and our mind becomes split and we start to doubt the goodness of God. Here's what happens. It says, 
then we can install Tabiel's son as king in it. See, the enemy will try to install Tabiel's son on the throne of your heart. The name Tabiel means this. God is good. Or the goodness of God. Here's what, the, here's what I'm saying. Your heart will begin to fill up with questions about whether God is good or not. And that will start to reign over you. See, when, it, when, when Tabiel's son gets installed on the throne of your heart, what happens is you begin to question the goodness of God at every single turn. And that begins to reign over your heart. You say, if God were good, I wouldn't be in this financial situation. If God were good, I'd be married by now. If God were good, I'd have a child by now. But don't let Tabiel's son be installed as king on the throne of your heart. Don't question the goodness of God. Why? Because God says it won't happen. He says it, it, it will not happen and it will not occur. See, God says here that when we raise the level of our expectation, our circumstances, the circumstances of life, they won't have any power over you. That's what God means that when he says it won't happen. He's saying that it won't have any power. It won't be, be powerful enough to control your life. It won't, it won't happen. He says that it, it will not occur. That word is, is the word that we get to, to exist. Uh, from Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 says, Then the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground, and he breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and man became a living being. See, challenges will come, and they will try to suck the life out of you. But God says, it won't work. Then he calls them to this challenge. He says, in verse number nine, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. See, this word, it, it suggests support or confirmation. But it also calls us to be faithful and to trust and believe. In other words, God is saying here, live by faith or you won't live at all. My God. He's saying here, live with great expectation or you can expect nothing at all. See, God is calling us to believe in him in the midst of our enemies trying to attack us and take us out. He's calling for us to stand firm, to believe in him. Or we won't stand at all. See, having great expectation in your faith will cause you to last. In fact, it'll cause you to outlast all of your enemies. Why? Because my next idea is this, is that the presence of the Savior gives us access. Show me verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. God always got to talk to us over and over again. He says to him, ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as as Sheol, or as high as heaven. God is saying in this passage through his prophet, put me to the test. God is calling us as his people to put him to the test through our faith in him. See, those who know the Lord, they put him to the test. And those who don't know the Lord, they don't put him to the test. So we see here, he's telling him, he says, ask for a sign. See, this sign is a distinguishing mark, a miracle or a proof. It's like anybody remember the story of Gideon? Gideon, and he's like, look, take this fleece, right, and just make the fleece wet, but don't make nothing else around it wet. And God's like, okay, cool, gotcha, boom. 
And he's like, oh, oh, well, no, no. Now wet everything around the, around the fleece. Just don't wet the fleece. So God's like, all right, cool. I got you. Boom, bam. Like he does it. So he's like, oh, all right, I guess, I guess I got to do it then now because you, you had did what I had asked and you had put me to this. So listen, God will do the outrageous and the miraculous in order to provide proof of his existence and his presence to you in this life. See, God will prove himself to you. And here's what I love about that. He don't have to do that. But God's saying, listen, I love you so much. I want to be with you. And I, listen, I'll do, I'll go so far as doing the miraculous in your life to show you that I'm present with you. He says it could be as deep as Sheol. Whatever you ask, you're like, come on, bro, like, ask me. Whatever you want to ask me, just ask me. Like, I'll do it. This word deep, it means to be profound or have depth. See, we look at things in our life and we think, mm, that's too much. I can't ask God for that. That's too deep. Like, I, I can't go there. But God's saying, come, come at me. Like, come at me, bro. Like, whatever. Ask me for what you want. But metaphorically, this word means to be unsearchable. See, Psalm 92, 6, it, it points us, it says that a stupid person, um, the Bible calls people stupid, uh, a stupid person does not know, and a fool does not understand this. It's unsearchable to him. And that points us to Romans chapter 11, verse 33, where Paul, he pauses to ask this question. He said, to make the statement, he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable are his ways. God wants to do something deep in your life. God wants to do something so profound in your life that it will be unsearchable. You'll be, one, you'll be sitting around wondering, how in the world did this thing happen? You'll be wondering, how in the world did I get from that place to here? How in the world did I move from that circumstance in life that I thought was going to take me out and run me over? How did I get from there to standing where I'm standing today? God wants to do something deep in your life, but he also wants to do something high in your life. This word means to be lofty. See, see, God, uh, one of my favorite theologians, Ray Ortland, he says that God handed Ahaz a blank check and he refused to cash it. Is God handing you a blank check? God, is God handing you a blank check and, and telling you, ask me for whatever you want, I'll do it? He wants to show his presence with you. He wants to prove himself to you. What is God telling you today that you're refusing to cash in on? But here's what happens. Ray Ortland goes on to say, he says, why did he refuse to cash it? He says, because he doesn't want to trust God. And the same is true for us. We won't ask God for deep stuff or lofty stuff because we don't want to trust God with it. We don't want to trust God with that business idea. We don't want to trust God with that entrepreneurial venture. We don't want to trust him. We don't want to touch, trust God with that teaching ministry. We don't, we don't want to trust them. We want to do it all in our hands. So he hands us a blank check and we say, nah, I'm good. I'm, I'm a pass. We don't respect God, so we don't expect from God. See, when you respect God for his character and his might, you will expect big and wonderful things from God. See, listen, we're rejoicing in the Epiphany Network right now because Dr. Mason's wife, she's been on a, trans, a liver transplant list for Several months. Now, nobody knew how sick she actually was. She was sick to death. Nobody knew that. But the whole time they were praying 
and expecting from God. They were praying. She wasn't on a transplant list at first. They were praying and expecting from God. And then she got on a list. And then they were praying and expecting from God. They were asking God to do big things to, to preserve her life, to save her life, to keep her. And now she has received a liver transplant. And she has now been released from the hospital. And God is up to miraculous and wonderful things in her life. And God wants to do the same kind of stuff in your life if you just put some respect on his name. See, you, you ain't putting no respect on his name. You're not respecting what he's able to do in your life. You're not expect, respecting his power in your life. Therefore, you don't expect anything from God. See, and here's Ahaz. He tries to make it all noble, right? He says, I will not test God, I will not test him. But Ahaz wasn't doing this out of his nobility. Ahaz was not a good king. He might have had the temple of the Lord, but he also worshipped other idols. He also sacrificed his own son. He didn't put his trust in God and in the situation of possible invasion, uh, he puts his trust in the Assyrian Empire. If you read uh, Second Kings, you'll see that he sent out a message to the Assyrians asking them for help, saying, I am your servant and your vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel. That's the northern. So then the Assyrians, they made an alliance and destroyed Israel and Aram. However, the relief brought by the Assyrian, it would not last. Eventually, it would turn against Judah. See, here's what happens. We see passages like this. We hear passages like this. Sometimes we read passages like this. Uh, and we hear this stuff from the Bible. And we think it's somehow disconnected or some ethereal thing that's going on. But the reality is, is that it's all connected in the redemptive historical nature. So, so the prophets were speaking to actual kings and rulers during their day. They also had positions to be able to access those rulers and speak to them. See, they were in a position where they were able to speak truth to power. And God still desires those prophetic voices today. God still desires to raise up today a prophetic voice in order to speak truth to power. He does. That stuff wasn't just going on willy-nilly. Like, it wasn't all separated. It was connected. That was for free. Let me move on. See, Ahaz's problem is just like our problem. We don't expect enough from God. In fact, we don't expect God to be God. See, we need to raise the level of our expectation that we have for God. When we don't ask for big things, deep or high, we test him and declare him to be rotten. Here's this word, this word to test. It's the word, it's, it's a Hebrew word. I love this Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word that they would describe it. It's to test by smell. So it's like you going into your refrigerator and pulling out a piece of fruit and taking it out and you go, ah, ah. I did that with some chicken salad this week. I was like, ah, I don't know about that. But that's what God is suggesting here. He says, go on and test me. Pull me out the refrigerator and <sighs> test me. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. God is calling for us to give him the smell test. And when we don't, when we don't trust God with big things, we declare him, mm, that's rotten. Then he asked him, he says, is it not enough for you to test man? You got to go and test God too? Like you got to try his patience? 
you got to cause God to be weary with you? Like, come on, bro. You're doing the most. Because here's what he didn't see. This is my last idea. He didn't see that the presence of the Savior was the promise. See, Ahaz was looking around for protection from others when God was saying, I'm right here. Look to me. I'm with you. But Ahaz, he wanted to run to other things to be his source. And don't you dare look at Ahaz and go, mm, Ahaz, he was wild. No, you do the same thing. You run to your job when stuff starts getting tight. You run to your spouse as the source of your validation when God says, I've given you everything that you need. So the presence of the Savior is the promise. So here, here's what God does. Because he refused to trust him, because he refused to ask God for, for what God was telling him, he was giving him a blank check. He says, listen, that's cool. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, when you see therefore, you got to ask, what is it there for? God is saying here, all right, that being so, cool. You don't want to trust me? I'm going to do it myself. See, Adonai here, the Lord, Adonai, himself, he will give a sign. See, God, oftentimes what's going on in the world is that God, we're looking around for change in the world, and God is saying, listen, I've given you everything you need to produce the kind of change that you want to see in the world. Here it is, right in your hands. I've given it to you. But we don't want that. We want God to somehow, poof, magically appear uh, like Lucky Charms and give us everything that we need to transform the world. No, God's saying, I've already given you everything you need, but cool. If you don't want to utilize that, I'm going to do it myself, and you're not going to like what I'm going to do. God out there, he's, he's like the Lord himself. You like Kevin Hart out there. You're like one man by myself. <laughs> no help. That's what he's out there doing. Keep that image in your mind all week long. God, one man, by myself. No, sorry. <laughs> Listen. God wants to use our expectation as a sign of him. See, God wants to use our expectation and request of him for of healing us as a sign to himself. See, we think that when we pray, oh, I don't want to pray and ask God for this because that's selfish. No, when you, when you pray and ask God for big things, what you're doing is, is you're providing an opportunity for your testimony to help others overcome by the blood of the Lamb. When you can tell somebody that God delivered me from cancer, when you can tell somebody that God delivered me from homelessness, when you can tell somebody that God delivered me from infertility, when you can tell your story, you point people to God himself. See, God wants to use our expectation and request of him rescuing us from danger as a sign for himself. Like he wants to use our expectation as a distinguishing mark, which calls people into relationship with him. If not, he says, I'll give you a sign. He says, and I'm landing the plane. He says, see, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. See, this is where we get excited about Christmas, right? It's like, behold, a virgin shall give birth uh, to a son and shall call his name Emmanuel and he shall save us from our sins. We start quoting Matthew and all that jazz. Like, we ain't read Matthew all year long, but we start quoting Matthew during Christmas and doing all that kind of stuff. But this is where we get excited. But this virgin here is, theologians, they, they refer to this as a dual prophetic fulfillment. See, in one sense, this word, this word suggests that there's no instance where it can be proved that it doesn't designate a young woman who is not a virgin. So the, the, this woman, whoever this is, is a virgin. And many theologians believe that this is Isaiah's son who will be born. 
and before he's able to walk and choose good from 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 bad the the the, the everything will fall apart that's verse 15 16 17 go read it later but during the time of ahaz this was being fulfilled but also it speaks of the future messiah that will be born who will bring freedom to all people so we call this the already and not yet sometimes see there's something going on right God is working, right? He's doing something. You may not see it yet, but he's at work in your life. You've got to know that. Even though you haven't seen the fulfillment of it yet, that doesn't mean that God is not working and moving things along in your life. See, there's a dual fulfillment here. When you pray and ask God for something, You can take it to the bank and consider it done as long as it's according to his will. See, when Matthew writes his gospel, he's he's highlight he's highlighting Isaiah and Isaiah is highlighting God's power to do the miraculous. So when Matthew writes his gospel about the life of Christ, he tells the story of Joseph wrestling with Mary being pregnant while she's still a virgin. That just sounds crazy, right? But then Joseph considers divorcing her when when an angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him that she will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. See, God is saying here that a virgin is going to conceive. What that means is there's going to be be a pregnancy that's going to happen. And here's what God wants us pregnant with. God wants us pregnant with expectation. I wish I had some believers in here who, who believe that. That God wants us to be pregnant with expectation. So here's what I'm saying to us today. Is that we're going to expect God to do big and wonderful things here at this church. We're going to expect God to multiply disciples here at this church who then go out and multiply more disciples and who go out and multiply more disciples and send the kingdom of God ablaze just like Jesus did when he took the three and he then he dealt with the twelve and then the seventy and then the hundreds and then he sent them out. And what happened was that the world was transformed because of the multiplication of disciples. We're going to expect that from God here at this church. We're going to expect God to begin to multiply disciples here. We're going to expect him to begin to do the work of creating more disciples whose burning passion is, guess what, to go make some more disciples. We don't exist here just for the cool lights and stuff. We exist to go and make disciples that Jesus commanded us to do. And we're going to expect God to plant us in a location that will become a lighthouse and a beacon here in this region. We're going to expect God to put us in a place where people will begin to be able to come and they can receive help for their hurting, help for their brokenness. And they could begin to receive the fullness of life that Jesus promises to all of those that are in him. Though I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But she says here that she's going to conceive and have a son. Why didn't it just say that she was going to have a baby? Like, why didn't it just say that? It's different. The conception, the conceiving part is different from the birthing part. Ah, you missed your shouting moment right there. See, the conceiving part, the conception part is different from the birthing part. See, God is going to birth something in you. He's going to birth something through your life that's going to be bigger than you've ever expected. And guess what it's going to cause you? It's going to cause you some travailing in the meantime. See, we think that what God wants to do in our life is just going to come easy. No, no, God, he's not going to do that, boo-boo. Listen, what he's 
he's going to do in your life is he's going to cause you to travail. He's going to cause you to have to birth that thing and force that thing out. You mothers who were expecting and those of you that had babies, y'all better help me out here and let them know that the birthing process is difficult and is hard. But at the end of it, there's a reward that you get to reap that's sweeter and more beautiful than anything that you could have imagined. Even with all the ultrasound technologies that they got now, and you can see your little baby's little smush face up against the thing, right? You think, oh, my baby's so cute. Oh, my gosh, look at my baby. But when that baby is born, and you get to hold that baby in your arms, it's more beautiful than anything that you ever expected. Somebody said push. <laughs> Somebody said push. Oh, man. <laughs> Listen. And when it happens, and I'm, I'm closing, when it happens, we will have no other option than to name the thing what it is. She says that he will have a son. She will conceive and have a son and will name him Emmanuel. See, when that thing that God has promised you, when that thing that you've been expecting from God comes to pass, you'll have no other option than to proclaim that this was God with us. You'll have no other option. You won't be able to do anything else but to say, Emmanuel, God is here with us. Look at this thing that he's birthed. When critics are confused, God's with us. When doubters start doubting, God is with you. When people start challenging what you believe and what you're believing God for, guess what? God is with you. And maybe you're in here today. And you feel alone. You feel like, man, I'm just going through this life. And nobody's with me. Nobody's there for me. I'm struggling by myself. I'm trying to make it. I'm trying to make life happen. But nobody's around. Nobody's there with me. Through this promise in Isaiah, God lets us know is always with us and that he'll never leave us or forsake us so those of us that are in Christ right we know that we know that truth but sometimes the truth is is that situations get hard and tough and we forget that God is always with us but I stand here today to remind you that God is with you that Emmanuel has come and that he's coming back again for his people He says, listen, once you come to know me, I'll set you up in such a way that you get to find freedom and you get to live woven with other believers. You get to be in relationship with those who are walking along the same journey as you. Trying to discover their purpose. Trying to discover what it is that God is forging inside of them. What God is filling them up with. We're all on the path trying to discover that. So that ultimately we can go out and make a difference in the world, in the lives of those that don't trust him. I want to invite you today to place your faith and trust in Jesus. If you're here today, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're in here today and you just want to place your faith and trust in Jesus, we'll invite you into a full relationship with him. God doesn't do anything halfway. He's going to give you a full relationship with him. One where you have fullness of life in him. Is there one today that wants to place their faith in Jesus? You can just lift up your hand. If you're here today, lift your hand. Jesus wants to be your savior. And he wants to give you his presence today. Won't you trust him? Won't you trust in Jesus today? Won't you come with great expectation about what God can do in your life? He'll do amazing and wonderful things. 
Father, bless these your people. Bless them as they go through the busyness of, of, of the season, God. May we not forget. God, I pray for those who are facing depression today. God, I pray for those who this season is a hard season for them. Maybe they've lost loved ones and it's hard.